Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. You may be seated. So we are once again in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13. And to begin, I want to give you a little bit of a context. Um, I went to Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary that's located in South Hamilton, Massachusetts. And I know this for most of you, that really makes no difference whatsoever where that school is located. Because most of you have never heard of South Hamilton, Massachusetts. But South Hamilton, Massachusetts is in New England. It's on the north shore of Boston. And just one or two towns away is a town called Salem, Massachusetts. Now that's a word that I, and a town that I know that many of you know if you've studied American history. Because Salem was that place where the infamous Salem witch trials were held. I don't know if you know this, but it's also where Parker Brothers has its headquarters. And at Parker Brothers, the Ouija board is produced. Now, we might think that if you're creating a town and you have this infamous past, you'd probably want to try to get rid of that stain, you might say. But Salem doesn't do that. It actually embraces its past. Its police cars have a witch as its insignia. Um, Wiccans and witch covens really litter that town. They gather to cast spells, especially on Halloween night. And it's often said that on Halloween night, the, the witches of the town will come out and they would actually cast spells and curses on this one seminary near it called Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. It's a very interesting place. Now, you might be listening to this and thinking, oh, isn't this much ado about nothing? There are so many things happening in this world that's more important than talking about such things, P pressing matters. But it really is dangerous to think that these things make no difference in our world today. We must never forget Peter's warning in 1 Peter 5, 8 through 9. Be alert and of sober mind. Be alert. Be ready. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. We must never forget that he is cunning. He is smart. And every door of our heart needs to be closed against this murderous thief. So I want us to take to heart Paul's words that Angie just read. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. 
For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And listen to this one phrase, and having done all to stand firm. So meaning there is no part of this battle that is insignificant or small or little. We have to do all. We have to make sure that every single door, just like a, a fortress, has multiple entrances. And it would be foolish to think that you can secure all the doors except for leaving that one door open because you think the enemy is not going to go through that door. Well, we have a, a really cunning, crafty enemy who is always looking for openings and will take advantage of any opening that there is. And so as we look at this passage, I want to focus on another area of the enemy's attack. And it's this area that we call, that the Bible calls divination. Because this idea of divination, I hope you'll see, is not just dealing with the occult, though it is that, but actually Christians practice divination more often than we realize. So first, what is divination? Divination, according to the Bible, is the attempt to determine the future without God. And this sin is a really heinous sin against God. When Israel was first entering into the promised land and Moses was writing down the law, God tells Moses this. He says in Deuteronomy 18, 9 through 11, when you enter the land, which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire. One who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. Those, All of those, that list is a list of many different things that the nations around Israel were doing to determine how to live this life, especially in understanding the future. And so these nations would pass through a child, throw them into the fires, hoping that the God of Molech would decide for them, this is how I'm going to bless you. This is how I'm going to curse you. It was always a, a, an attempt to try to, quote, find the will of a God so that you knew how to live your life. Now, keep that in mind because that phrase, that ideology is not just for the pagan nations. It's very much the heart of even sometimes tragically for Christians. But you'll notice that there are very evil practices that are a part of this. And we see this in many different ways today, this type of what I would call pagan divination. We see it, for example, in horoscopes. I remember being a young child where, I don't know if they have this now, but you know those little red machines? Put a quarter in, turn the dial and out pops out a little plastic bulb and in it were horoscopes and you determined on the basis of what 
month you were born, and I was born in September 2nd, so I'm a Virgo. And so therefore, I look and I see, okay, this says this about me. I remember getting those things and actually believing this is how I'm going to live my life. Actually, it, was, it used to be in the newspapers every day of what your day was going to be like based on what is that really about? An astrology about the stars. That is to say that the stars and its alignment somehow determine your future. There's uh, the Chinese calendar, the year of the rat, you know, the chicken, the whatever it might be. And there's something to that. It's more than just about determining what animal you're like. But really, it says this is who you are. There's superstitions, lucky, unlucky numbers. You know, hotels a lot of times in America don't have the 13th floor of a building. There's black cats and tarot cards and palm reading and psychic readings, Ouija boards. All of those things are occultic means by which a person determines their future. And these are an abomination, something that God hates. He abhors. Why? Because it is a means by which we determine life apart from him. And all of these are meant to give you an eye into the future apart from God and his word. So here's the question. Why does God hate this so much? I want to give you a few reasons. First, it's an idolatry. Think about the first sin in the garden. There was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That tree of the knowledge of good and evil was an attempt by Adam and Eve to determine their life apart from God. That tree was a horoscope. It was a Ouija board. It was a tarot card. It was a psychic reading. It was a way in which I could say, I'm going to determine for myself how I can figure out life without God. It's a divination. It's a way in which we can say, I do not trust God. I want to trust someone else. So they're listening to Satan. And Satan has this way of getting us to look at anything and everything to know about our lives except for God. And he doesn't care what it is. It can be psychology. It can be trying to watch television or read comic books, watch the movies, horoscopes, psychic readings, the satanic church. It doesn't matter as long as it is not God. That's all he cares about. So it, you could be looking at the stars. Some cultures look at sticks, wear little amulets or um, emblems or ribbons, anything. Anything that makes us think God is not who he says he is, I'm going to determine it. That's idolatry. And so that's why God detests divination. Secondly, is that it shows that God's word is insufficient for your life. At the core, whenever we turn to Anything else other than God's word, we're saying, I do not believe God's word. I don't think it's sufficient. It doesn't have the right uh, enough for me to live my life. The warning against all other nations that Moses and gives through Deuteronomy through God, through God is that when you turn to stars and some of the nations would open up the liver of an animal and through that liver would try to figure out how to live life. It's 
it's their way of determining the future, but it's also their way of saying, I don't want to trust God's word. I want to trust something else. Next is misplaced comfort. Divination has often um, historically been through things such as seances, the conjuring up of the dead. And this is something that has happened even historically. Mary, uh, Mary Todd Lincoln, the wife of Abraham Lincoln, she was notorious for her seances in the White House. And the reason she did so was because her second son died early. And so because she had so much grief, she wanted to see her child. And so she would gather up a medium and different people go to the White House and conjure up a, a son. And when we experience, especially the, the loss of a loved one and experience that great grief, there is a temptation to say, if I could just see them one more time, I will finally be happy and satisfied. And so we turn to other means and other people to be our comforter rather than the Holy Spirit. Jesus says in John 14, 16 through 18, that he's our comforter. He's our joy. He's the one who is with us. First Corinthians 15 tells us that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. There will be a day if that person is in Christ and we are in Christ where we will see them again. We do not need to bring them or try to attempt to bring them to our lives. To do so is to say, I don't trust the Lord to be my comfort. I trust some apparition to be my comfort. A false future. Divination, again, is about the future. But it's a false future that we're looking for. It's, it's not true. And every pursuit of a future apart from God is always a false future. That's why James warns Christians. He says in James 4, 13 through 15, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. When we cannot leave the future into God's hands, and when our hearts are filled with worry and anxiety, we reveal unbelief. And then there's the temptation to say, I want to turn elsewhere to find the answers, to find out what my future is like. Many of us in this season of COVID, we are in a waiting season. God is using this waiting to refine us. You know what he's using this waiting for? Whether it's waiting to wonder whether we're going to be able to send our kids back to school, whether we're going to have a job or not. Maybe some of you are waiting on a possible job. And it's so easy to be so overwrought with worry that we start figuring things out for ourselves. We want to control the future. But the Bible tells us constantly that wait patiently on the Lord, trust him, depend on him, lean on him. He will carry your burdens. How often does the Bible teach us that because he's using that to show us we can trust him with our future? David cries out in Psalm 16, 8, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. In the end, thinking about your future will always coincide with your relationship with God. They go hand in hand. 
how you view the future is exactly where you are with the Lord. I really like what Jerry Bridges says about this author, Jerry Bridges, in his book, Can uh, Trust in God. He says, can you trust God? The question itself has two possible meanings before we attempt to answer it. Can you trust God? In other words, is he dependable in times of adversity? But the second meaning is also critical. Can you trust God? Do you have such a relationship with God and such a confidence in him that you believe he is with you in your adversity, even though you do not see any evidence of his presence and his power? That's very important. Can you, because of that relationship, because your, your dependence on his word, even when you see no evidence of his presence and power, you still trust? Ah, now that's waiting. That's trusting. Now that's pagan divination. I want to show you Christian divination. Because whether you believe it or not, there are many examples of Christian divination. And the problem with Christian divination is that it can seem godly. And that's why it's the work of the enemy. It's so crafty. They can seem quite spiritual when we practice this type of divination. But when you consider how God primarily reveals himself, which is through his word, and the gospel of Christ, which is revealed through his word, it's easy to see how we fall back to pagan forms of divination, even under the guise of Christian words and ideas. Uh, Pastor Chuck Swindoll tells a story of where a man's car stalled in front of the Philippine embassy. And as soon as that happened, he looked and he thought, God wants me to be a missionary to the Philippines. A woman who was wondering whether she should go to, on a tour to Israel was looking at a brochure saying the plane would be a Boeing 747. That morning she woke up and as soon as she looked at the clock, it said 747. And so she saw that as a sign that God wanted her to go to Israel on this tour. Now you might laugh or think that well, that sounds ridiculous. But whether we realize it or not, we're all looking for this sign. This one thing that says, if I get this sign from you, Lord, if this neon sign comes down, I will do this. I will be a missionary. I will take on this job. I'll marry this person. But Jesus makes it so clear that we will get no other sign but the sign of Jonah. It doesn't mean that God never uses signs. But if we're looking to a sign other than Christ himself, then we are no different than the pagans who are trying to examine livers or throw sticks or look at tarot cards. I can't tell you how many people I've had conversations with who have wondered, shall I take this job or that job? Shall I move here or there? And always looking for a sign. Well, if this comes and this comes, this door opens, then that must mean God wants me to take this job. So therefore I will be blessed. And then when they take the job, they're miserable in the job. And they say, well, did I misread the sign? It happens so often, far too regularly where we are trying to find God's will as if God is hiding his will from us, as if the Bible is not there and we're not looking in his word, but rather we're looking to this secret place that God has hidden 
his will from us and we're, he's playing hide and seek. And we're trying to figure out, where are you, God? Where are you, God? Bruce Walke, who is actually going to be the professor who's teaching this class in OT theology, he wrote a book called Finding the Will of God, A Pagan Notion. And it is so helpful on this topic. His premise is exactly that. To find God's will is nothing more than divination. And he writes this. It's a longer quote, but I think it's a very important quote. Far too many Christians rely on faulty logic to justify divination. Their thinking goes like this. God has a specific plan for me, and therefore he intends that I find it. There are three logical errors in this kind of thinking. First, it's a non sequitur. A conclusion that does not logically follow the premise. Simply because God has a specific plan for you does not mean that he necessarily intends to reveal it to you. As a matter of fact, the message of the book of Job is in part that we live in mystery. That's important. We have to be okay with the mystery. That's trust. Secondly, a second logical error in divination is that it assumes we can control our destiny. If we could probe the divine plan for our lives, our newfound knowledge would not make one iota of a difference in the outcome. A third logical error is that if we could probe the divine mind, we could choose the best course of action, a course that avoids suffering and death. Because that's our intended goal when we're trying to find the will of God. I want to go the place where I'm not going to suffer the most. And so therefore, I'm going to choose... Isn't that the challenge for us when we're trying to seek God's will and find it is God's will must be that he wants me to be the safest, where I'm comfortable, where I'm prosperous, where when I get this new job, I'm going to succeed. Everything's going to go well. That's God's will for me. Prosperity, not suffering. But what if you could actually know the divine mind, which we do know in scripture where Paul says, Three times I asked that the thorn of the flesh be removed from me, but Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for you. It's in your weakness. My strength is made perfect. No one would choose suffering as the means by which we actually grow and turn to Christ and love him more. That's the road of the cross. To find the will of God is to know his word and to know that he loves us so much that he gave his life for us. Now, therefore, go and do likewise. May we take less time to try to find God's will by trying to find the least road of suffering, but rather may we pursue Christ to deny himself, to take up his cross daily and follow. Many people look at the story of Gideon and say, but look at Gideon. He put out the fleece. We look at Judges 6, 36 through 40, and we think, therefore, signs are good. But if you read the passage and its context, you definitely do not get a sense that the putting out of the fleece was actually a good thing. It speaks more of God's grace that despite the fact that Gideon didn't have enough faith, God still answered with a sign. See, there's a big difference between God saying, I want you to ask for signs like that because when you ask for signs like that, then that's exactly what I want. It's God is gracious. And yes, sometimes he does provide signs. We see it throughout scripture. But never think that we are supposed to do that. That's not normative. Our normative life is supposed to be trust his word. It's a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. And then sometimes 
as a result of our continued trust, God also provides signs to confirm. So it's not that he never uses signs. He never opens doors. But you look in scripture and you always see that as people are pursuing and progressing and and trusting more and more, God confirms through different means. And that happens more and more, not I don't believe God at all, and a sign just pops out of heaven. In fact, every time I've looked for a sign from the Lord, I've never really gotten it. And usually I have a very specific way. That's the problem. We also have a very specific way in which God wants that sign revealed. It must be something spectacular. And if it's not, then God doesn't provide it in that way. One thing that we know is Elijah looked for that. Remember the the whirlwind, the fires, God wasn't there. Where was he? In the small whisper. You must realize that divination is not merely found in the Old Testament. If we're honest with ourselves, we practice our own forms of divination, especially when we think about the future, but we couch them in Christian terms. And know this, to take part in any form of divination, pagan or Christian, is to open one door of your heart to the devil. And Paul says we must stand We must stand. So may we close all the doors. So he will attack the mind as we've spoken about. He will attack our bodies as we've spoken about. He will attack you through divination. Next is he uses apparitions and ghosts and black magic. Only the hardcore committed skeptic would believe that there are no such thing as ghosts and apparitions. You know, what's interesting is that The most staunch atheist believes in ghosts, the supernatural. They don't believe in God, but they believe in ghosts. Because in the mind of the unbeliever, the ghost is explainable, whatever that means. But God is not. So therefore, there is no God. Now, I know some of you have your own stories. We like telling them over campfires sometimes and hearing stories, ghost stories. They sort of titillate our minds and our hearts. Go to different areas around the world and different cultures, and every culture has a ghost story. Um, there are stories of houses where objects suddenly move on its own, creaking sounds and footsteps in the attic, where the darkest of sins and even death arises. There are sometimes these type of manifestations. There's a reason why when someone dies in your home, you have to disclose that when you sell that house. There's a reason why that cemeteries and houses right next to a cemetery loses its value, even though the house could be beautiful. Because listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 24, 24, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Meaning... There are going to be these great signs and wonders. They will happen. And they're going to be supernatural, miraculous. But these supernatural, miraculous happenings are not because of Jesus, but because of false Christs and false prophets and demonic spirits, really, because of Satan's work, great powers in this world. So we've talked a lot about Satan's power. Moving a few dishes and making a few creaking noises isn't so hard for them. So this begs the question. Are all ghosts and apparitions, especially when they take on the form of other people, are they 
real ghosts or are they demons disguised as ghosts? Let me give a few observations from the Bible. First, regarding impersonations. We know that Satan and his demons are able to impersonate other beings and spirits. Paul makes this so clear for us in 2 Corinthians 11.14. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He is the father of lies. It makes sense that he would take on forms to deceive others. Why would he do that? Because he's a master manipulator. If someone were to lose and grieve over the loss of a loved one, how do you take advantage of that? How do you take advantage of that is that you comfort them through an apparition. And that apparition, suddenly it makes you feel so much more comfortable, not in God and in his word, but in some sort of image, something other than God. And once that happens, that person is robbed of the only one who can comfort his soul. When we are most saddened and grieved, our longings should be that we want to be with Jesus, as Paul writes about in first, uh, Philippians chapter 1. And he's the one who promised we can come to him with heavy burdens in Matthew eleven twenty four, But longing for presences through seances and ghosts, it opens ourselves up to Satan and his schemes, and those never satisfy. Secondly is that we see from Scripture that fear is often the result of these apparitions. That's what they bring, fear and dread. And remember, fear is a response Satan works so hard to get from God's people. John tells us that, and we talked about it when we were going through the John series in 1 John 4.18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. I know many of us, perhaps when you're younger, and perhaps you're doing it right now, you watch a lot of horror movies. And you think to yourself, you just like a good fright. It's, there's nothing behind it. It's, it's not bad. So you can, I remember watching those movies with my friends. We go into, I watched a, a, a really satanic movie with four friends of mine. And it happened to be in the afternoon and there was no one in the movie theater except the four of us. And so what we decided to do is sit in four corners of the room by ourselves. It was actually a truly satanic movie. It, it was called Prince of Darkness. And by the middle of the movie, the four of us were sitting next to each other. <laughs> I mean, but here's the thing is that I've watched all sorts of movies, murder, like really terrible horror movies. You know, to this day, they still sit in my soul. To this day, they're still, uh, um, now I've had to pray over that. It fills your dreams, your nightmares. It controls you. And what, what does it bring but dread, fear? And we might say that that fear doesn't impact any other part of our lives, but it does. It creates fear of the unknown. It makes us feel as though something out there is going to get us rather than trusting God, who is our fortress, our strength, our deliverer. And so the more we fear, the more we forget God. And again, remember Satan's number one task, the greatest purpose of all of these wiles is to remove you from the safety of God's presence. And so fear is an attempt to do that. 
And so these movies that glorify Satanism, demonism, I believe that on Netflix, there's a, like a, a series on Satan right now, just trying to emphasize, well, Satan's not so bad. You know, he's not that big of a deal. It creates this fear in you and it opens your heart to the enemy's attack. It is not too late to stop, but you must keep an eye out for your eyes. What are you watching? What are you looking at? What are you seeing? And how is that impacting the way that you view this world in your own heart? I think when most of us, when it comes to the Bible, you might think in ghosts, there's one passage of the Bible that probably comes to mind. If you know the Bible at all, it's 1 Samuel 28 and the witch of Endor. And you might be thinking, well, isn't that an instance where a ghost was a good thing? Saul goes to Endor to visit the medium. By the way, Saul had already cast out all the mediums out of the land. And so they were all in hiding doing this undercover. And Saul at this point was so far from God, he went to the mediums. The very thing that he was never supposed to do, as we just read in Deuteronomy, he does it. He goes, he asks the medium to conjure up Samuel. And we read what happens next. In, um, we read in 1 Samuel 28, Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. Now we learn a few things here that are very important. First, you have to recognize the woman's response. What is she like? She's shocked. She's shocked because, you know what? She didn't do anything. She didn't say anything. She didn't actually make the conjuring words. As soon as Saul said, bring up Samuel, well, Samuel comes. It had nothing to do with the woman. In other words, God sovereignly intervenes in some way, not to bring up a ghost, but in some way to bring Samuel in, in every way and very, possibly very similarly in the way in which the transfiguration happens where Jesus, Elijah, and Moses. This is God's sovereign response to intervene into an action where he ordinarily does not do. So this is a very rare instance, but it's not a ghost, but it's God sovereignly acting. It's so much beyond what this woman understood that she is shocked because she did nothing to make this happen. We have to realize that also that there is an action that God will sovereignly take and he does it apart from over above anything that Satan could ever do. This is a great instance of our trust, our hope in a God who is over all, not just over all physical things, but spiritual things. Paul rightly says in Colossians 1, 16 through 17, for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Speaking of Jesus, and look at what, what Paul is saying, invisible, visible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, which by the way, those are referring not just to physical rulers and authorities, but even demonic rulers and authorities. Jesus is over all. If that is the case, why should we fear? Why should we dread? 
Why should we turn to any other means by which we should know the future than to trust him and to believe him and to know that he works all things for our good, according to Romans 8.28? One day, Satan and his demons, they will not want to, but according to Philippians 2, 5 through 11, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is great news. We need not be afraid. Let us not be intimidated by Satan and his demons. Now, the purpose of this message, I hope you get it. It is not to scare you, but it is to make you as aware as possible of his wiles and schemes. You must not forget what John said in 1 John 4, 3 to 4. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he that is in the world. Yes, the spirit of the Antichrist, Satan, is in this world. But what does John say? You are from God. That is, you've been called, you've been chosen, you've been redeemed, you've been adopted if you are in Christ Jesus. And the promise is that if that is you, you have overcome. And he who is in you is greater than every Satan and every demon. Remember Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus is in you. Not only is that who you are, but Jesus is the greatest power in the world. That's who is in you. So we don't need to control our future. We don't need to be anxious and to fall into divination of any kind. We can trust him. Or as John proclaims in John 10, 28, I gave, I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Boy, that's great news. That's why we come. And that's why we take this bread and this wine to remember that. So let's take this time to prepare our hearts for communion. Let's pray together and give thanks to the Lord. Father, we praise you. You are so good. We love you, we worship you, we adore you. You are the King, you are the Lord. And Jesus, we believe with all of our hearts that there is no need to be afraid. What can man do to us? What can Satan do to us? He has tried so hard to destroy the church, to destroy believers, but he who is in us is greater than he that is in the world. Help us, O Lord, especially right now in this season of waiting and of wondering. Maybe there are some out there, O Lord, who are afraid, afraid of a virus, afraid of illness, afraid of death. Father, I pray that you would Remind us that perfect love casts out fear. We need not be afraid. Father, help us in this season to be even more generous, more bold in faith, to be able to um, stand against the wiles of the enemy. We thank you, Lord, that you use even such times to firm up our hearts, to believe that you are Savior and Lord. We give you thanks and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.